From Settlement to Superpower, Episode 6, The Lion and the Eagle. Hello everybody and welcome back. Today we will continue with the epic story of the Spanish conquest of Mexico. And no, we will not finish Cortez's story in this episode. I've actually realized that this is going to take another two episodes after this one to really wrap up the saga of Cortez and the Aztec Empire. Truth to be told, had I known at the outset of my retelling of this story how long it would take, I probably wouldn't have begun it. I would have just given the whole conquest of Mexico one of those single paragraph treatments, something like, a fellow named Cortes goes to Mexico, makes allies with disaffected subjects of the Aztecs, goes to their capital Tenochtitlan, and captures the Emperor Montezuma. Eventually, the Aztecs throw him out of Tenochtitlan, but he regroups his forces and destroys the Aztec Empire. You know, something like that. Being as that is, I'm actually really glad that I terribly underestimated the amount of time it would take to retell the story properly. Kind of like how we're also glad that Columbus terribly underestimated the distance between Spain and China. If he hadn't done so, he would have never sailed westward. It would have been a terrible shame for us to skip over such a wonderful story simply because it is a few episodes longer. It's like driving through northern Arizona on a road trip and just not visiting the Grand Canyon because it's an hour or two out of the way. And this story isn't even all that irrelevant. We're still going to be spending quite a bit of time on the Spanish, French, and English rivalry in America and the Caribbean. And later, when we get to the 19th century, the history of Mexico is going to be a pretty big deal. So, it's not even like we're wasting our time on something irrelevant here. But in addition, in our detailed retelling of Cortes's story, we're going to meet and get to know some pretty important characters in the history of Spanish Florida, who we're going to get to. You know, such as uh, Panfilo de Narvaez and Lucas Vazquez de Ailon, who we really wouldn't have thought much about otherwise if we would have merely given Cortez superficial treatment. So yeah, I'm really enjoying the way our narrative is going despite the delay, and I hope you are as well. It would be great, however, if you could give me your feedback on how this podcast is progressing. Are you happy with the pace? Would you rather faster, slower? Let me know what you think and send me an email at fromsettlementtosuperpower at gmail.com and some of you have done so already, thank you very much. Or leave me a comment on our WordPress site from SettlementToSuperpower.com. Now, my asking for your input doesn't necessarily mean that I'm holding some kind of legally binding plebiscite, but I am curious as to how you all feel about the way the podcast is going overall. Anyways, we left off last episode with Cortez's decision to move on from his comfortable birth in Tlaxcala and on towards Tenochtitlan, and it is from there that we will resume our narrative. This decision, like just about every other decision Cortes made, was received very differently by the two parties with which he was treating, the Aztecs and the Tlaxcalans. The Aztecs, of course, were strongly in favor of Cortes relocating to Aztec territory as soon as possible, if not sooner. They urged him to come to the great Aztec city of Cholula on the road to Tenochtitlan, where the emperor had at last agreed to meet him. They expressed surprise that a man like Cortes deigned to tarry in such a filthy and ill-bred place such as Tlaxcala, 
and repeatedly enjoined him to follow them to Cholula. The Tlaxcalans, on the other hand, were distraught that Cortes intended to leave them. They initially perceived this decision to be a lack of trust towards them on the Spaniards' part. But even after Cortes managed to mollify them with his assurances that he would never act against them, they still dreaded his departure. They were afraid that their newfound friends and mighty allies would squander themselves and be undone by Aztec trickery. They warned Cortes, accurately as it turned out, that the Cholulans were a crafty bunch and they no doubt would attempt a betrayal of some sort. They offered to send their whole army along with Cortes to protect them against the Aztecs, but Cortes wisely refused. He wished to have a mobile force, and besides, the Tlaxcalans could hardly be trusted to keep the peace with their bitter rivals, the Aztecs, and such a flare-up was emphatically not in the Spanish interest at the moment. Instead, Cortes took with him a much smaller force of 6,000 Tlaxcalans to protect and assist him on the road ahead. Cortes had entered Tlaxcala six weeks earlier and had met with ferocious enmity. Now, he left it a dear friend and ally. During the time he was in Tlaxcala, a number of the leading chieftains, Xicotencato the Elder included, had been formally baptized and converted to Christianity, and the Tlaxcalan nobility had willingly given their daughters to the Spanish as brides. Of these, by far the most prominent was Dona Luisa, the daughter of Xicotencato, who had given her to Pedro de Alvarado, who the Tlaxcalans referred to, along with Cortes, as the son. Cortes wished to more aggressively proselytize among the population, but he was restrained, now as many times before and after, by Father Olmedo, the expedition's preeminent priest, who informed Cortes that now was not the right time to press such matters. In fact, if not for the constant restraining hand of Father Olmedo in spiritual matters, it is quite likely that Cortes's entire expedition would have fallen apart in a cataract of disaster as a direct result of Cortes's intemperate zeal in matters of religion. In any event, getting back to our story, Cortes left Tlaxcala for Cholula towards the end of 1519, with the Totonacs, Tlaxcalans, and Aztec delegates in tow. Cholula, a tributary state of the Aztecs, was one of the oldest, largest, and most venerable city-states in all Mexico. Cortes estimated that it had some 20,000 houses, with many more in its surrounding villages. Although it is quite likely that Cholula did not have nearly as many houses as that, it was still the second largest city in the Aztec Empire, eclipsed only by the massive Tenochtitlan. Cholula was also the original seat of the Mexican religion and a major site of pilgrimage, essentially the Jerusalem or the Mecca of the Aztecs. Legend had it that it was here, long, long ago, that the god Quetzalcoatl had stopped on his way to the sea, and had taught the Toltecs proper governance, a more humane and spiritualized religion, and the more general arts of civilization. The Cholulan Quetzalcoatl's relation to pre-Columbian Mexico can be likened to the relation between, say, Numa Pompilius and the city of Rome. In Cholula stood the ancient temple of Quetzalcoatl, a massive pyramid rivaling in its dimensions the Great Pyramids of Egypt, dating back to well before the Aztec arrival in the Valley of Mexico. 
Tradition had it that should Cholula ever come under attack, Quetzalcoatl's priests should pry away a few stones from the temple's wall and a great deluge would burst forth, sweeping the invaders away. In part due to legends such as this, and in part due to the reverence in which the people of the Valley of Mexico held the city, the city of Cholula was rarely, if ever, involved in warfare. The Cholulan populace, unencumbered by the sorts of militaristic societies, as were their neighbors, were free to pursue other, more peaceful specialties. Cholula became the foremost manufacturing and commercial center in all Mexico. Indeed, probably in all pre-Columbian America. Weavers, potters, and metalsmiths created the most fine and delicate products in the entire region, which were then traded with their neighbors by the city's large number of merchants. It is not surprising, then, that the people of Cholula gained the reputation of being an effeminate people, far more shrewd and clever than brave and strong. As we have seen earlier with the Tlaxcalan warnings to Cortes not to trust the Cholulans. In truth, this sort of unfairly stereotyped reputation very commonly occurs to the more mercantile nations and cultures, and indeed, the thoughtful observer will be able to immediately identify several such demographics in our own modern societies. In any event, Cortes arrived shortly in Cholula. Prudently, he instructed his Tlaxcalan allies to remain on the outskirts of the city, in order to prevent the inevitable altercations which would occur if they were actually allowed to roam about in the city. Cortes and his men, as well as the Totonacs, entered the city, where they were greeted at first with lavish hospitality. The graciousness which was showed to him by the Cholulans initially dispelled the misgivings with which Cortes had arrived at the city, and he imputed the warnings of the Tlaxcalans to mere bad-mouthing and slander about their old enemies. However, after several days, the tenor of the Cholulans abruptly changed. The apparent catalyst in this change of attitude was the arrival of a new embassy from Montezuma. In an inexplicable reversal from Montezuma's earlier invitation of the Spanish to Tenochtitlan, the Aztec ambassadors now reverted back to their old position, intimating that Cortes's presence in Aztec lands and his insistence upon meeting the emperor were causing the emperor some degree of annoyance. They privately conferred with their ambassadors, took one of them and left. From that point on, the Cholulans' disposition towards the Spanish changed visibly and dramatically. No longer did the Cholulan dignitaries come and visit the Spanish camp, and every time the Spanish invited them, they made excuses that they were ill and could not come. Suddenly the corn, which had once been plentifully supplied, seemed to constantly be in shortage, and alas, there was just never enough for the Spanish. And there were other warning signs too. The Tlaxcalans snuck into the city and informed Cortes that a large force of Aztec warriors were camped outside the city that they had seen large numbers of women, children, and the elderly stealing out of the village as if to escape some coming fight, and that in a distant quarter of the city many children had been sacrificed to the gods, a sure sign that some hostile initiative was in the brewing. Even considering that the Tlaxcalans were profoundly hostile to the Cholulans and thus prone to magnifying the threat posed by them, this was still disquieting news to Cortes. 
Even more ominously, the Sempoalan Totonacs, who really had no reason to lie, related to the Spanish that they had come across several roadblocks and barricades thrown up around the city, that they had seen some rooftops stocked with boulders and projectiles, and that they had discovered covered pits with sharpened upright stakes in them, cavalry traps. The stroge broke the camel's back, or shall we say more accurately the anvil which broke the camel's back, was a piece of alarming intelligence from La Malinche. She had made friends with the wives of one of the Cholulan chiefs by pretending to be dissatisfied with the Spanish, whom she declared had enslaved her. The chief's wife encouraged La Malinche to escape the Spaniards and to hide in her home, and to so escape the fate which would befall the Spaniards. Pretending to be grateful for the offer, La Malinche drew out of the duped woman the details of the conspiracy. Apparently Montezuma was behind all this. He had sent hefty bribes to the Cholulan nobles, instructing them to attack the Spanish after they had been drawn out into the streets, where all sorts of obstacles would confound their cavalry and negate the efficacy of their cannons. A large Aztec force, 20,000 strong, was situated on the outskirts of Cholula to assist them once the operation was sprung into action. A suitable number of the Spanish prisoners would then be sacrificed in the great temple of Cholula, while the rest would be brought in chains to Tenochtitlan, where they would presumably be sacrificed on the platform of the Great Pyramid. La Malincha, upon hearing this, realized the urgency of the situation, and while her Cholulan friend was momentarily occupied, she stole out of the house and raced to Cortes to tell him of the mortal peril in which he and his men were in. Cortes immediately had the noblewoman seized, and under interrogation, the terrified woman confessed all, and confirmed everything which Cortes's mistress had told him. Cortes then followed up on this piece of intelligence by summoning to him two high-ranking priests of Cholula, whom he liberally plied with golden gifts. Their tongues thus loosened, the priests fully confirmed the noblewoman's account. The priests told Cortes that Montezuma had initially ordered that the Spanish be treated with all due courtesy, but he had apparently changed his mind later at the instigation of his priests and soothsayers, who assured him that Quetzalcoatl would surely destroy these demons residing in his holy city. Now, the image one gets from all of the Spanish depictions of Montezuma is highly unflattering. He is depicted as a craven, sneaky, pusillanimous, vacillating weakling who never quite knows whether he wants to fight or grovel before the Spaniards. To Montezuma's great misfortune, no complete Aztec account has survived to counter the accusations of the Spanish, and so we are forced to rely on the characterizations of his enemies. This is truly unfortunate, as prior to the arrival of the Spanish, the Aztec people apparently thought quite highly of their emperor, and he was considered an extremely worthy warrior. However, be that as it may, we must rely on the Spanish accounts of his final months, hostile towards his much maligned memory though they may be. In any event, Cortes knew that he needed to act, and he needed to act decisively. Retreat was impossible as he and his men were hemmed in inside a strange and hostile city. Nor were half-measures going to be sufficient. That would merely project weakness, and a projection of weakness would likely prove fatal for both him and his men. No. 
Instead, he and his men were going to strike hard, so hard that nobody would ever dare betray the Spanish again. Cortes assembled the Cholulan chiefs before him and, rather than furiously berate them over their treachery, he mildly admonished them for not being as hospitable to him as they should have been. Never mind, he said, on the morrow he would be departing Cholula for good and would no longer be a burden upon them. Cortes requested 2,000 men of Cholula to join him in the march to Tenochtitlan. The Cholulan chiefs, who couldn't have asked for a better way to infiltrate Cortes's camp, readily agreed, and with that Cortes dismissed them, enjoining them to appear the following day in the great square before the temple of Cholula with the men he had requested to see him off. Following this, Cortes summoned the Aztec delegates and angrily informed them of the conspiracy he had uncovered, as well as of his assumption that Montezuma was behind all this. Predictably, the Aztecs protested that they were entirely in the dark about the plan, and Montezuma would have never sanctioned such treachery. It must have been the entirely independent initiative of the Cholulans. Of course, Cortes didn't believe them for a single second, but at the moment it suited his agenda to pretend that he did. He told the Aztecs that in this case the Cholulans were doubly guilty, as they had betrayed the trust placed in them not only by Cortes but also by their own emperor Montezuma. Cortes assured the delegates that he believed their protestations of innocence, as there was no way that a monarch as great and wise as Montezuma could possibly sanction such duplicity. Cortes declared that he himself would punish the Cholulans with the utmost severity, to a sufficient degree to expiate this double treason the Cholulans had committed. After delivering this message, Cortes had the shaken delegates shown to their quarters, around which a heavy watch was placed to prevent their contacting the doomed Cholulans. The next day dawned bright and early and the Spanish were ready. They had contacted the Tlaxcalans the night before, telling them to be ready and on standby to attack the city as soon as they heard the sounds of combat. Cortes's men positioned themselves near the three entrances and along the perimeter of the great square. Cortes then had the chiefs come to him, and there at last he revealed that he knew everything about the conspiracy. He furiously berated the thunderstruck chiefs, accusing them of violating his trust when he came in good faith as a friend. The Cholulans didn't even try to deny the plot, instead they protested that it had all been on Montezuma's orders. Cortes harshly informed them that that was an insufficient defense, and that he was going to make such an example of them that all of Mexico would hear and tremble. On Cortes's signal, the Spanish attacked. As pikemen barred the square's exits, the swordsmen charged into the crowded mass of thousands of Cholulans gathered in the square, just killing, 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 as arquebus, crossbow, and musket fire poured down on the exposed Indians. There was no escape. The chiefs and all their assembled men were cut down where they stood, shocked and uncomprehending. Meanwhile, the Spanish horsemen screened the outside of the square, cutting down any Cholulan in sight. The Spaniards' Tlaxcalan allies, having heard the din coming from the city, lost no time in charging in as well, beating, killing, and plundering the populace. A great many of the wooden homes were set aflame, the flames crackling mixing with the shrieks and groans of the massacred, to create a hellish dreamscape out of the once idyllic and prosperous city. 
a small party of warriors and priests forced their way into the great temple, with intent to pry away the stone walls to release Quetzalcoatl's great inundation and to so destroy the enemy within their gates. Desperately, the priests pried off the stones with their bare and bloody hands, but instead of a great deluge bursting forth from the crevice, some dust and a few pebbles tumbled lazily out. They were doomed. Quetzalcoatl had failed to protect them. Perhaps he was too busy taking a nap. And now the Spanish were putting his temple to the torch around them. As the flames greedily consumed the shrine of Quetzalcoatl, his priests either hurled themselves down to their death or else were consumed alive in the ensuing conflagration. For several hours the sack of Cholula continued. Homes, temples, and palaces were plundered licentiously. Women and children were seized as slaves, and blood ran through the streets like water. By the time Cortes restored order in the city and proclaimed a general pardon, some 6,000 Cholulans lay dead. Cortes had delivered a message that would not be easily forgotten. Following this massacre, Cortes called the trembling Aztecs back and told them that, their protests notwithstanding, the Cholulans had pointed their fingers at the Aztecs, accusing them of being the authors of the recent perfidy. As a result, Cortes told them, he had changed his mind and was no longer marching to Tenochtitlan as a friend, but rather as an enemy, with full intent to do them harm. The Aztecs pleaded with Cortes to wait until they could send a message to Montezuma and Cortes agreed. Montezuma sent back a groveling letter, admitting that there had been some Aztec connivance along with the Cholulans, but maintaining that the initiative belonged to local Aztec commanders alone who had acted without any orders from higher up. Cortes pretended to be mollified by the explanation and resumed his inexorable and to the Aztecs inexplicable march on to Tenochtitlan. Before he resumed his march, however, the Totonacs of Sempoala came to Cortes and requested that he permit them to return home. They had angered Montezuma with the seizure of his delegates, and they feared entering his mighty stronghold. In vain did Cortes attempt to reassure them that they were under his personal protection. They were simply too afraid to advance any further. Cortes saw that there was no more to be gained than forcing the Totonacs along against their will, and so he released them back to their city on the coast, instructing them, however, that they were to give the Spanish garrison at Villarica de la Vera Cruz their fullest assistance. The Totonacs acquiesced and set out for home. The Tlaxclans, however, were made of sterner stuff, and they were more than happy to go at these strangers into the heart of that empire they despised so deeply. Throughout the journey to Tenochtitlan, native tribes and cities sent delegates to the Spanish, requesting their protection and providing them with gifts. A great many of these also expressed a significant deal of antipathy towards their overlords in Tenochtitlan, and they urged the Spaniards to shatter their yoke. And so, in high spirits, the expedition forged on, climbing, ascending, twisting their way through the volcanic peaks and ravines, separating them from their desired destination. Finally, upon wending their way around a particular bend in the mountains, the entire valley of Mexico unfolded in a magnificent tableau before their eyes. Miles of carefully cultivated farms and fields, dotted with hamlets and villages, 
covered the approaches to the great city of Tenochtitlan. We've already described the city back in episode 4, and as such I don't see a particularly pressing need to do so again. But suffice it to say that the Spanish were absolutely awestruck by this panoramic view of the continent's greatest metropolis. Most of them had never even seen a city a third of Tenochtitlan's size, let alone a city so carefully and symmetrically laid out. Indeed, some of the more feeble-hearted members of the expedition wished to turn around rather than confront such a mighty and advanced civilization. But in the end, Cortes and those stouter hearts in the expedition carried the day, and the Spanish descended into the valley. All along their path, curious crowds gathered to watch them move along. Repeated Aztec delegations came to them, bearing tremendous tributes of gold and treasure, and relaying Montezuma's promises of a lavish annual tribute to Don Carlos of Spain, if only they would turn around and desist from entering the city. But Cortes, his greed whetted rather than satisfied by the riches he beheld, pressed on. It was at this point that Montezuma completely cracked. He had, until this point, vacillated between terror and resolve, but now all resolve had left him. And I think we can all understand that. These strange beings appeared from across the impassable sea and has succeeded in subduing the populous Tabascans, the rebellious Totonacs, and most frighteningly of all, the valiant Tlaxcalans, and all without suffering so much as a dent in their own power. All of Tenochtitlan's vaunted shields, her warriors, her cities, her mountains, were swept away as though they were nothing by this relative handful of creatures. It was as though an alien race would land on Earth in our times, and within a span of a few months those aliens had succeeded in entirely depopulating Europe, shooting down America's entire nuclear arsenal, and were now standing on the Potomac River, requesting the federal gold reserves. It is virtually unimaginable to us how shaken and demoralized the Aztecs, and especially Montezuma, were. In the face of all these unpleasant surprises, he had decided to submit and obey the wishes of these strangers. He would accept them as his equals and their lord across the sea as his lord. When Montezuma's more warlike brother, Quitluac, urged him to resist, the despairing emperor cried out, Of what avail is resistance when the gods themselves have declared against us? Yet I mourn most for the old and infirm, the women and children, too feeble to fight or to fly. For myself and the brave men around me, we must bear our hearts to the storm and meet it as we may. Here we catch a glimpse of another kind of heroism, a national fatalism and subservience to the cosmic order scarcely comprehensible to the Europeans of that time, let alone to us. And indeed, after war between the Spanish and Aztecs broke out, the Aztecs would fight on with an almost superhuman stoicism, without giving the slightest regard to the hopelessness of their situation. It has been said truthfully that the Spanish religion allowed them the confidence to win, while the Aztec religion allowed them the courage to die. In any event, Montezuma sent another embassy with even more lavish gifts, welcoming Cortes to Tenochtitlan. Over the next few days, Cortes and his party moved closer and closer to the metropolis, stopping each night in a suburb larger and more luxurious than its predecessor. 
sumptuous palaces filled with golden gems, richly embroidered clothing, and massive aviaries filled with exotic birds of every hue and size. The Spanish were just completely in awe. Most of these gentlemen explorers had grown up on the martial romances of the time, of the sort pilloried in Don Quixote, wherein the chivalrous heroes cut through swarms of enemies and encounter marvelous and exotic locations. Well, for these Spaniards, real life had outpaced their fairy tales. And that fairy tale was reaching its climax right now. On November 8, 1519, the Spanish entered the capital of the New World, ogled at by tens of thousands of mystified eyes. Upon crossing over the causeway into the city, they were greeted by a delegation of some hundred Aztec chiefs, each of them bearing gifts and elaborately welcoming the Spanish into their city. The thousands of Tlaxcalans in tow must have been tickled pink at how brazenly they were marching into the capital of their ancient foes. Following this welcome from the nobles, the great emperor himself appeared. Leaning upon the arms of two subject kings, the emperor advanced towards the Spaniards with dignity and poise. The two men exchanged gifts and Montezuma departed. The Spaniards were brought through the great city to the palace of Montezuma's father, the palace of Ayashkatl, where they once again met Montezuma, who gave them even more gold. They rested for a short time and then received Montezuma again, who acquainted himself with the names of some of the leading Spaniards, and with Cortes, whom Montezuma would call Malintzin. That night, the Spanish celebrated their arrival by firing off their cannons, the reverberating clamor striking fear in the hearts of the populace, reminding them that they now hosted in their city the Children of the Sun. The following morning, Montezuma sent word to Cortes that he would receive him in the palace. Cortes, accompanied by Alvarado, Velázquez de Leon, and some seven or eight others, went with the Aztec delegates to the palace, where they found Montezuma sitting on ornate cushions in a spacious room filled with the sweet scents of incense. I will let William Prescott, whose account of the Spanish conquest of Mexico, though antiquated, remains the liveliest English narrative of the story today, describe the interview to you. Cortes, without much ceremony, entered upon the subject which was uppermost in his thoughts. He was fully aware of the importance of gaining the royal convert, whose example would have such an influence on the conversion of his people. The general, therefore, prepared to display the whole store of his theological science, with the most winning arts of rhetoric he could command, while the interpretation was conveyed through the silver tones of Marina, as inseparable from him on these occasions as his shadow. He set forth as clearly as he could the ideas entertained by the Church in regard to the mysteries of the Trinity, of the Incarnation, and of the Atonement. From this he ascended to the origin of things, the creation of the world, the first pair, paradise, and the fall of man. He assured Montezuma that the idols he worshipped were Satan under different forms. A sufficient proof of this was the bloody sacrifices they imposed, which he contrasted with the pure and simple rite of the Mass. Their worship would sink him in perdition. It was to snatch his soul and the souls of his people from the flames of eternal fire by opening to them a pure faith that the Christians had come to his land. 
and he earnestly besought him, not to neglect the occasion, but to secure his salvation by embracing the cross, which Cortes said was the great sign of human redemption. The eloquence of the preacher was wasted on the insensible heart of his royal auditor. It doubtless lost some of its efficacy, strained through the imperfect interpretation of so recent a neophyte as the Indian damsel. But the doctrines were also too abstruse in themselves to be comprehended at a glance by the rude intellect of a barbarian, and Montezuma may have, perhaps, thought it was not more monstrous to eat of the flesh of a fellow creature than that of the Creator himself. He was, besides, steeped in the superstitions of his country from the cradle. He had been educated in the straightest sect of her religion, he had been himself a priest before his election to the throne, and was now the head both of the religion and the state. Little probability was there that such a man would be open to argument or persuasion, even from the lips of a more practiced polemic than the Spanish commander. How could he abjure the faith that was intertwined with the deepest affections of his heart and the very elements of his being? How could he be false to the gods who had raised him up to such prosperity and honors and whose shrines were entrusted to his special keeping? Montezuma listened, however, with silent attention until the general had concluded his homily. He then replied that he knew the Spaniards had held this discourse wherever they had been. He doubted not that their god was, as they had said, a good being. His gods also were good to him. Yet what his visitor said of the creation of the world was like what he had been taught to believe. It was not worthwhile to discourse any further on the matter. His ancestors, he said, were not the original proprietors of the land. They had occupied it but a few ages, and had been led there by a great being who, after giving them laws and ruling over the nation for a while, had withdrawn to the regions beyond where the sun rises. He had declared on his departure that he or his descendants would again visit them and resume his empire. The wonderful deeds of the Spaniards, their fair complexions and the quarter whence they came, all showed that they were his descendants. If Montezuma had resisted their visit to his capital, it was only because he had heard such accounts of their cruelties, that they had sent the lightning to consume his people or crush them to pieces under the hard feet of the ferocious animals upon which they rode. He was now convinced that these were idle tales, that the Spaniards were wise and generous in their natures. They were mortals from a different race indeed from the Aztecs wiser and more valiant, and for this he honored them. You too, he added with a smile, may have been told perhaps that I am a god and that I dwell in palaces of gold and silver. But you see it is false. My houses, though large, are of stone and wood like those of yours, and as to my body, he said, bearing his tawny arm, you see it is flesh and bone like yours. It is true I have a great empire, inherited from my ancestors, lands and gold and silver, but your sovereign across the water is, I know, the rightful lord of all. I rule in his name. You, Malinsin, are his ambassador. You and your brethren shall share these things with me. Rest now from your labors. You are here in your own dwellings, and everything shall be provided for your subsistence. I will see that your wishes shall be obeyed in the same way as my own. As the monarch concluded these words, a few natural tears suffused his eyes, 
while the image of ancient independence, perhaps, flitted across his mind. Cortes, while he encouraged the idea that his own master was the great being indicated by Montezuma, endeavored to comfort the monarch by the assurance that his master had no desire to interfere with his authority. Otherwise then, out of pure concern for his welfare, to effect his conversion and that of his people to Christianity. Before the emperor dismissed his visitors, he consulted his munificent spirit, as usual, by distributing rich stuffs and trinkets of gold among them, so that the poorest soldier, says Bernal Diaz, who was one of the party, received at least two heavy collars of the precious metal as his share. The iron hearts of the Spaniards were touched with the emotion displayed by Montezuma, as well as by his princely spirit of liberality. As they passed him, the cavaliers, with bonnet in hand, made him the most profound obeisance, and on the way home, continues the same chronicler, we could discourse of nothing but the gentle breeding and courtesy of the Indian monarch, and of the respect we entertained for him. End quote. But despite all of this apparent camaraderie, Cortes was very much disturbed about his prospects, perhaps more than he'd ever been up to this point of the expedition. Nothing Cortes had heard had prepared him for Tenochtitlan, with its commendable organization and its vast numbers. Cortes had a really strong sense that he had bitten off way more than he was able to chew. How was he supposed to capture such a massive and dense city? These were no brutish yet warlike Tlaxcalans, nor were they cultured and effeminate Cholulans. Rather, this was a race of both martial and cultural achievement. Moreover, Tenochtitlan's unique topography, with its many channels and drawbridges, made it an extremely difficult city to penetrate, and perhaps more concerning, a difficult city to escape. Nor was Cortes able to delay much. He knew that in all likelihood, Governor Velasquez back in Cuba had heard about what he was up to, and Cortes knew that any day a superior Spanish force could arrive under Velasquez, and that would mean certain death for him. Cortes had to act, and he had to act fast. The honeymoon between him and Montezuma was nearing its end. Cortes finally settled upon a bold course of action. He would take the emperor into Spanish custody as a hostage. This had the potential to go catastrophically wrong, but it was the best option Cortes had. Not only that, but Cortes already had his pretext for this move. You see, when Cortes had left Villarica de la Veracruz, he left there a garrison of 150 men under the command of his friend and loyalist, Juan de Escalante. Not long after Cortes' departure for the interior, an Aztec delegation had arrived at Veracruz declaring that their master, a certain Aztec governor in the region, wished to come personally and offer his allegiance to the Spanish. All he needed was for four Spaniards to come and escort his men as a protection from some hostile tribes along the route. The Spanish had sent the men, but the governor had only treachery in his heart. Two of the Spaniards were killed, while the other two managed to escape the Aztecs and flee back to Veracruz. Upon hearing of this betrayal, Escalante led his men and their Totonac allies out against the Aztec garrison and met them in pitched battle. The Totonacs, however, fled at the outset of the battle from the vaunted Mexican warriors, and Escalante and his men were left alone in the field. 
They succeeded in carrying the day, although their victory came at a heavy cost. Eight of the Spaniards, including Escalante himself, were killed during the battle or died of their battle wounds. When the Spanish interrogated their prisoners, the prisoners revealed that the entire incident had been at the instigation of Montezuma. Cortes had heard about this outrage while he was still in Cholula, but he had kept it hidden from most of his men out of concern from their morale until now. Now, however, he and his men would make their move. The next morning, Cortes, along with Alvarado, Velázquez de Leon, and three others of his bravest men set out for an appointment with Montezuma. Cortes had a large contingent of his force assemble in the streets leading to the palace, in order to hold back any Aztec attempt at rescuing their emperor, while the bulk of his forces would trickle into the palace in smaller groups. Throughout the morning, Cortes maintained an amiable deportment towards the emperor, but at noon, when he decided he had enough of his men present, he abruptly changed his tone. He angrily recounted the tale to Montezuma, who had already known all about the incident, and he charged Montezuma with being the author of that treason. Montezuma expressed shock at being accused of this, and he vigorously denied the charges. Cortes told him that he believed him, but he must demonstrate the truth of his words by immediately having the governor arrested and brought to Tenochtitlan for judgment and presumably execution. Montezuma agreed without hesitation to this demand, taking off his signet ring and giving it to a messenger whom he charged with the arrest. Cortes continued and said that while he appreciated Montezuma's compliance, there was one more demand he would need to accede to. Montezuma would need to move his lodgings from his palace to the palace of Ayashkatl, where he would live with the Spanish as a friend. In other words, he was under arrest. Upon hearing this demand, Montezuma turned white. After all of his attempts to stave off the impending disaster, he finally realized the enormity of the events now transpiring. In a tremulous voice, he refused. The Spanish attempted to cajole him, to convince him that he was not actually going to be their prisoner, but the Aztec monarch was too wise to believe them. Finally, after about two hours of debating, Velasquez de Leon lost patience. Drawing his sword, he declared angrily that he was sick and tired of all this talking, and if Montezuma wouldn't come, they would hack him to pieces. When La Malincha translated his words to Montezuma, the king's resolve crumpled, and tearfully he ordered his little bears to take him to the palace of Ayashkatl. He would never again return to his palace. As the dejected emperor was carried through the streets, the news spread throughout the crowd that the emperor was being taken off by force by the white strangers, and an immediate clamor arose for resistance. This was silenced by Montezuma himself, who told them that he was not a prisoner, but was visiting his friends of his own free volition. Although the crowds knew this to be untrue, nonetheless Montezuma's words had their desired effect, and the crowds dispersed. The Spanish treated Montezuma for the time being with tremendous, if not exaggerated, courtesy, until the guilty governor arrived. He had arrived unrepentant, in pomp and ceremony, accompanied by his son and fifteen local chiefs. They did not deny anything, but instead laid all the blame at Montezuma's feet. Cortes' decision was summary and harsh. 
the governor, his son, and all the chiefs were to be burnt alive. And what was more, Cortes didn't just use any fuel for burning the men. He used the Aztecs' stores of arrows and weapons, which were stockpiled around the city so that the people of Tenochtitlan would have easy access to them in the event of an invasion. Thus, Cortes executed the chiefs while at the same time he removed the source of potential nuisance and danger down the line. The chiefs bore their sentence stoically, not even emitting a single cry of pain as the flames devoured their bodies. This has always been one of the most noble aspects of the Native Americans. They showed how heroic men could transcend all pain, retaining their dignity even in the direst of straits. Their example would be a worthy one for us in our pampered age to take heed of. But whatever dignity the governor's men died with, the same cannot be said of the sensitive Montezuma. For after taking the men out to be burned, Cortes returned with one of his men, holding iron chains. Such a serious crime as Montezuma had committed, said Cortes, really deserved execution as its punishment. But since Montezuma was a king, a lesser punishment would need to suffice. The soldier bent down and fastened the fetters around the shocked Montezuma's feet. Cortes watched this humiliation coldly and without a single word of comfort and as soon as the chains were fastened, he turned his back on the monarch and strode abruptly out of the room. This time Montezuma didn't protest. His spirit was totally shattered. His pain was too deep to be expressed in words and only an occasional heart-wrenching groan revealed the depth of his feelings. Montezuma would never recover psychologically from this ordeal. Even though his chains would be removed later that day, the iron chains on his soul would remain there for the rest of his days. He was no longer a king in his mind, but rather a wretched captive. When the grisly business outside was finished, Cortes and Montezuma declared publicly to all his lords that he was the vassal of the Spanish king across the sea, and that henceforth they should offer Cortes as his representative the same reverence they had once accorded him. As he said these terrible words, Montezuma's face was bathed in tears and his voice got so choked up with weeping that he could barely get the words out. The Aztec nobles were shocked at the change in their formerly mighty emperor. The man who might have once condemned a man to death with the mere raising of a finger now cravenly thanked his captors for unchaining him. There was nothing for them to do but to submit to Cortez's demands and swear fealty to his king across the sea. Cortez also informed the assembled nobles that it would be appropriate for them to show their newly pledged devotion to the king of Spain by paying a large tribute of gold and silver. The word was sent out and over the next week so much gold was brought in by the Aztec chiefs so as to equal in our own day some several hundred million dollars in precious metals. The Spaniards were exultant at this massive treasure they had accumulated. They had more treasure in that room than anyone alive in Europe at the time had ever seen in a single place. They were set for life. We're going to end off this episode with one final incident of Spanish consolidation of power. Montezuma's nephew, Cacamatzin, was the king of Texcoco, the second city in all the Aztec Empire with regards to political importance. 
Cacamatzin was furious at the humiliations the Spaniards were foisting upon the Aztecs, and he beheld the abject state of his uncle with nothing but contempt. In vain did he entreat his uncle not to submit himself to the Spanish invader, but rather to fight and if necessary die as befitted a proper Aztec. When he realized that his uncle had no more will to fight left, he began conspiring with several other Aztec chiefs to eject the Spanish from the city. Of course, Cortes found out about this conspiracy, and would have marched to Texcoco himself with his army to put an end to this nonsense, had not Montezuma intervened. Montezuma first tried to send an offer of mediation between Cacamatzin and the Spanish, but was rebuffed by his headstrong nephew. When Cortes followed up on this with a menacing letter reminding Cacamatzin that his monarch was now the rightful ruler of Mexico, Cacamatzin replied defiantly that he knew nothing of this monarch across the sea, nor did he intend to do so, and he definitely recognized no such authority. He declared that the next time he would arrive in Tenochtitlan, he would not do so with his hand on his bosom as a friend, but rather with his hand on his sword as an enemy. At this Cortes was infuriated, and wished to proceed against Cacamatzin in open warfare, but thanks to Montezuma's collaboration, this was unnecessary. Cortes was able to capture Cacamatzin through treachery. What happened was that Montezuma bribed several of the Tuscan nobles to invite Cacamatzin to a conference discussing a potential invasion of Tenochtitlan. When the unsuspecting Cacamatzin arrived, he was seized and hauled off in a waiting boat to Tenochtitlan. When he was brought before Cortes and Montezuma, the young noble stood proud and unrepentant. Instead of begging for mercy, Cacamatzin upbraided Montezuma for his unworthy and shameful behavior, if we may use an anachronism, for being a quisling. Cortes was not impressed, and he had Cacamatzin bound in fetters, and later tortured. Furthermore, Cortes and Montezuma ordered the arrest of all the other conspirators, an order which was swiftly carried out. All of the rebellious nobles were held under strict Spanish confinement from there on in. It seemed as though Cortes had now neutralized all of his enemies. The Spanish were even confident enough to go ahead and turn one of the city's temples into a church, much to the fury of the population. What Cortes and his men didn't know, however, was that a much greater threat was on the way, one that threatened to unravel all of Cortes's achievements. That and more on the next episode of From Settlement to Superpower. Thank you.